Well, tonight we return to the book of 2 Kings. We'll be looking at 2 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. 2 Kings 8, 1 through 15. Before you turn there, I want to tell you, you're going to encounter something that you think is a little strange if you've been following this preaching series in the book of 2 Kings. You'll find that particularly a minor character here named Gehazi pops up in this section of Scripture. The Western mind... Our mind often thinks in a linear or even chronological fashion, don't we? But this is not necessarily true of the Eastern mind or sometimes of the authors of different books, particularly the books of the Bible. In their mind, in this particular section of Second Kings, it's apparent that the Elisha narratives have been put together not necessarily chronologically, but thematically because of this small section in chapter 8 and the mention of Gehazi again without his leprosy. But in the bigger picture of God's sovereignty, as the author is putting together these narratives in the life of Elisha and the reign of Ahab and Joram, his son in particular, this big picture of God's sovereignty is displayed first through his miracles of grace exhibited through Elisha in chapters 2 through 7, and when we encounter chapter 8, there becomes a switch that now God is demonstrating his sovereignty and powerful judgment through that same prophet. So follow along as we look at first a section of grace in verses 1 through 6, and then a section of judgment in verses 7 through 15. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now... The king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him, so the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. Now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick, and when it was told him, The man of God has come here, the king said to Hazel, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? So... Hazel went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camels' loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go say to him, You shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. And he fixed his gaze and stared at him until he was embarrassed. And the man of God wept. And Hazel said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, 
and you will kill their young men with the sword and dash in pieces their little ones and rip open their pregnant women. And Hazel said, What is your servant, who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Then he departed from Elisha and came to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazel became king in his place. So we consider these words of grace and judgment. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, grant us wisdom from these words. Grant us understanding by your spirit to have ears to hear and hearts to understand your word. But Lord, also help us to apply the truths contained therein to our lives that we might glorify you with our heart, souls, mind, and strength. Lord, prepare my words to be consistent with your own. Prepare our hearts to please you this night, that we might see your grace, or else that these words, if they're not consistent in these ways, would fall away, never to be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, perhaps in recent history, there were certain individuals such as Mother Teresa or others who were often venerated for their love and kindness to the poor, the lowliest, and the needy. It's hard work to meet the needs of the poor and to love them and to be kind to them. On the other hand, there are many theologians, say R.C. Sproul, for example, or others who are esteemed for their love for the bigger picture, for their bigger picture of the movements of churches and kingdoms and God's sovereign rule over the face of the earth. But what about details and big pictures? What about the lowliest and the highest? Who is it that can be perfectly wonderful addressing and ruling over both? Well, of course, the answer is the Sunday school answer, isn't it? God little child growing up in Sunday school knows that probably more than 50% of the answers are God or Jesus or something like that. And so often they're right. In this case, who is it that is sovereign over the greatest things and the smallest things, over rulers of the earth and the poorest of the poor? It's the sovereign God of heaven and earth. And in this passage uh, that we're looking at, both events in verses 1 through 6 followed by 7 through 15, we see both the lowliest and the highest, both the smallest details and the bigger picture. It's demonstrating to us God's ministry and reign of grace, his ministry of rule or reign, and his ministry of judgment. I mentioned that here is perhaps a transition from Elisha's ministry of grace where he was restoring and saving and preserving by the power of the work of, of God within him he was doing these things in his prophetic office, but now this transition will go from the grace of saving this lady and her family to the judgment upon Israel and the prophecy that is contained therein. But first, the grace. Let's look at the grace once again. Here is the ministry of God's grace in this Shunammite woman. It's interesting, we never get this lady's name. We don't know her name to this day. Perhaps in heaven she'll introduce, us and say, introduce herself and say to the people of God, by the way, here is my name that you may have been wondering all these centuries later. We don't know, but God chose this woman to give her exceedingly wonderful grace. 
You see, this prophet's reward is part three of the story. We need to be reminded of parts one and two. What had happened, if you knew back in chapter four, is Elisha was constantly going through a particular area in which this woman lived in Shunem, and she saw that he was coming and going. She said to her husband, let's build a room for him so that we can give him a place to stay when he's coming and going. And because she did this, Elisha asked his servant Gehazi, what is it that this, this woman could use? The woman didn't need anything at that particular point in time, and she said that, I don't need a thing from you. But Gehazi said, well, she doesn't have a son. She doesn't have a child. And so Elisha, by the power of God's grace, told her at this time, the next year you will bear a son. And so this part one of grace for a prophet's reward is new life. Now, why do we call this a prophet's reward? If you look in your bulletins at the back, you'll notice a scripture passage. It's from Matthew 10, 41a. Jesus said to the people of God, he said, the one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. In other words, someone who is hospitable to someone bringing the word of God to the people will receive a reward for their kindness. In fact, Hebrews 6.10, the next verse on that page says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Even the smallest things, God will give his reward. The reward for this woman was a mighty reward, a child, a new life. That was part one. Part two of the story was this. If you remember later on in chapter four, what happened Unknown to Elisha, the child of this woman went out to, her, uh, to his father, and he had a major headache, and he went back uh, to his mother, sent back by his father, tell your mother what's going on. He goes up to the room, and he died. And Elisha, when he found out, was called by God to go back to the place of this Shunammite woman, and by God's grace, as this verse reminds us, verse 1 of chapter 8, she is the woman whose son he had restored to life. Part one of grace was a new life, a child. Part two of this grace that was given to this Shunammite woman was restored life, brought back from the dead. But here is part three. Unbeknownst to us, because there's been an intervening series of narratives in the text before us, we return back to the Shunammite woman of chapter four, and Elisha had already told this woman at some point during Joram's reign, he said, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine and it will come upon the land for seven years. Why is it that that particular woman got that announcement and perhaps not others? Maybe Elisha did tell others, it doesn't tell us, we don't know. Whatever the circumstances are, God has reminded us that once he shows grace on his people, he doesn't stop, does he? This was part three, not new life or restored life, but now preserved life. He was preserving this whole family from the ravaging effects of a famine that he had brought upon the land. That's part three. But now, part four. This, of course, is in the context here of part three. They had gone away. They went. They lived in Philistine for seven years. 
and then they return. But what happens to your property when you abandon it for seven years? Well, if nothing, or if nobody comes to your property, you know, it gets into disrepair, doesn't it? The house gets into disrepair. The, uh, in our day and age, the plumbing wouldn't work. The electric would be broken and turned off. Uh, the yard wouldn't be mowed, you know, whatever it would be. But in those days, it was a little different because what would happen is one of two things evidently took place. Either someone took advantage of her being gone and seized her property and began to use it for their own benefit, or the king took the property for his own use as government property during this time period. So she comes back after these seven years. The circumstances now are that she has lost her homestead. She's lost her house. She's lost the land. The possibility here, if you haven't noticed, a missing character in the story is her husband. At some point, whether it was before she went to Philistia or whether it was after that she evidently lost her husband because he's never mentioned in the story. It could be like Naomi, who did much the same thing, going off in a time of famine she lost her husband and her sons and returned without them. In fact, the word Naomi means bitter, so she came back bitter because of the circumstances. This woman, at some point in the narrative, between the birth of her son and this point in Scripture, now no longer has a husband, and she is completely at the mercy of the political situation and the political process of providing for her or restoring her land. She's in dire straits. But it's interesting, in this miracle, we don't see an amazing, powerful thing done. We don't necessarily see what we would consider a supernatural thing done. We see something that seems to be circumstantial, don't we? At some point after these seven years, here is Gehazi, assumedly before he acquired leprosy in the story with Naaman and so forth, and he is talking to the king. The king has inquired about the miracles of Elisha. Here's a king who hates Elisha. Here's a king who is opposed to the God of Israel. Here's a king who, by and large, is someone who is interested in doing evil things in the kingdom and deserving of God's judgment, and yet he has a curiosity of what God is doing through his prophet Elisha. And so here is Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. He's been told, tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And he begins to tell him. And of course, the highlight of the conversation appears to be, by the way, did you know that Elisha restored someone back to life? And of course, this is an amazing thing. Now, Joram knew some of the other things that Elisha had done, some of the things directly affecting Joram usually adversely. But he perhaps did not know this story. And so Gehazi is telling him how this boy was raised back to life and be reminded of all the details of how it took place. And in those circumstances, at the very moment he is saying those things about that story to the king, Gehazi looks and he sees this woman who has come to cry out a term to remind us that she's in dire straits coming back from this famine, looking to once again reside in Israel, asking for her house and her land back. And here 
is this woman, and Gehazi sees her. By the way, here she is, right here in the court of the king. My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. The provision here is this. The king heard this, and he was so caught up in the story of what God had done through Elisha that he appointed at that moment someone, an officer of some sort in his kingdom, to go and have everything restored to her, and on top of that, to give her not only her land and her house, but all the produce, all the yield that that land had given for the last seven years. So God gave this woman a new life in her son, a restored life and a dead son raised from the dead, a preserved life, warning them of famine so that they would not die of starvation. And then coming back, even restored the ability once again for her to provide for her family. We would say, as some would say, these were mere circumstances. But we know better. This is God's grace in the life of his people. Here's God's work on behalf of the Shunammite woman, kind of an emblem of God's grace throughout this time period and God's grace to us. He showed his kindness to a needy woman. It's as simple as that. There are times when we must, by God's grace, a fruit of the Spirit is kindness, and we should be kind to others to model God's kindness to us. What a what a wonderful picture of God's grace in the life of this woman, unnamed, lowliest of low, by this time likely a widow, as poor as can be, looking to provide for her family, and God does it again and again and again. But you know the other thing this does is it exposes to us something about a wicked king. Here's King Joram. Why in the world does he care what's going on with Elisha? It exposes Joram's curiosity with Elisha. Last week in the morning service, we looked at Herod Antipas and his fascination with John the Baptist and later on with Jesus. As far as we can tell, Herod Antipas never came to faith, but he had kind of a morbid fascination with righteous men. Joram here seems to be much the same. He was exposed to God's kindness and grace. He was exposed to God's miraculous power. He was exposed to the fact that here is a prophet that by God's revelation could fend off an entire army of Syria. And yet here is a king, despite his curiosity, who apparently never had that curiosity come to a time of conviction. The comparison between Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, and Herod Antipas, I think, is very great. They had curiosity, they had interest, they had even respect for God's grace, and even respect for God's servants, the prophets, John the Baptist in the New Testament, and here, Elisha in the Old Testament. But respect for God's grace is not the same as conviction and belief in God's grace. I have to ask you, when you hear about God's grace, is it just something where you have an emotional reaction? Is it just something where you love to hear the stories? 
Or is it something that reminds you in God's power and wonder-working power of the gospel? Does it convict you of your sin to experience God's grace in the full? Or is it just the story that you find interesting and acceptable? Is it a life-changing exposure to God's grace? If not, then unfortunately, this next section reminds us of God's reign in the world and his judgment to come. There's a real change here, isn't there? You might have wondered how do these two stories fit together. And, you know, there, there's not really a, a lot of us to, a lot of ways to understand other than it happened in the same time period with some of the same characters and with some of the same circumstances in the land. Elisha, for whatever reason, it says in verse 7, came to Damascus. Damascus, of course, is in Syria, not Israel. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. If you remember Ben-Hadad, he's the guy who surrounded Samaria. He's the guy who reigned for nearly 40 years over Syria. And they tried to starve the people of Israel out. He sent commanders and armies to try and take out Elisha at one sense or another. It's not as if Ben-Hadad and Elisha were good pals. Elisha comes to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is sick. When it was told him the man of God is here, has come here, the king said to Hazel, take a present with you, go to meet the man of God, and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, shall I recover from this illness? First of all, the ministry of God's reign extends beyond a prophet's ministry. Why did Elisha go to Damascus? You know you have to turn all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 19 to get the answer to that. If you know what happened before Elisha became the prophet Elisha with the double portion of Elijah's spirit, Elijah in his ministry, when he got to the end of himself and felt sorry for himself, was told to get up and start doing the office of prophet. And he said, God said to him in chapter 19, verse 15, he said, I want you to go to Damascus and anoint Hazel, king of Syria. I also want you to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And I want you to anoint Elisha to take your place as prophet. But you know, we never get that Elijah actually did the other first two things, anointing Hazel and anointing Jehu. It's possible that he may have done these things. But it appears to be that the ministry of Elijah actually extended into the reign of Elisha. It was the fulfillment of Elijah's calling as a prophet. And so therefore, he followed Elijah's path. Elijah was supposed to go on his way down through Damascus and then come back into Israel. Well, this is what Elisha does. Elisha is fulfilling Elijah's calling here. God's reign extends beyond the life of a prophet. It could be that God in his ministry and in his sovereignty over the world decided that as he called this office of prophet to do it, Elijah, he called to himself before he carried out all these things, but it was still a command of God. And Elisha carries this out. But the ministry of God's reign also extends beyond the borders of his people, doesn't it? Remember, the people of God in this time were resided in Israel and Judah. Here they are in Damascus, the capital of Syria. And it's amazing what takes place here. Here is Ben-Hadad, you expect to be the enemy of God and his people and all those things, and he is. 
those things. In fact, he's cruel, he's wicked. He's someone who seeks to oppose God's will from time to time. But here at this moment, in his illness, he recognizes something that even Joram doesn't recognize. The prophet of God is superior than the prophet of false gods. He finds out that Elisha is in town and he tells his servant Hazel, the man of God has come here, go inquire of the Lord for me. Will I get better? This unusual inquiry from a pagan enemy of God's people to suggest that he knew that God would know whether he would recover. What amazing information. Then, of course, he gives this unusual gift, at least to our ears. Can you imagine a pastor looking out the door and here comes 40 camels full of merchandise from Syria? You know, what, what, a, what a fascinating gift. Now, it, it could be that they were 40 camels that in the oriental fashion of showing majesty and wealth, each camel might have carried one item. That's possible, too. But whatever the case, it's a display of wealth and riches and the glory of Damascus coming to Elisha to ask this question, am I going to get better? And perhaps even more is the unusual answer. Elisha says this, Go say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. Elisha, do you know what you're saying? On the one hand, it sounds like you're saying he's going to get better. On the other hand, you're saying he's not going to get better. In fact, it's interesting. There's actually one little uh, word here uh, that, that can either mean not or can mean to him. And so there are some who say that this passage means, he says, uh, say to him, you shall certainly recover, but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die that there's a, a not and a to him that is confusing here. And they say, Elisha, we know, would not lie to this guy. And, and yet, what does he mean here? Of course, the circumstances are such that we understand what he's saying. Left to nature taking its course, as we might say, left to God's design with this illness, the king would recover. But Elisha was also a prophet knowing that though he would recover physically from such an illness, yet the circumstances were such that he would die instead. This is God's reign. He knows every circumstance. He knows every detail. He knows every possibility. God is in control of Syria and its kings. God is in control of Israel and its kings. God is in control today of the United States of America and its rulers. But you know, Scripture reminds us of these things, that God is sovereign over all things. You know, I think one of the most telling Scriptures of all of the early Scriptures of the Bible to tell us that God is reigning over all things was Jacob's dream at a place called Luz. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is escaping from his brother Esau because he's stolen the uh, blessing from their, their father Isaac. And as he's traveling down the road, he comes to this place called Luz and he has a dream and he, his pillow is a rock on the ground and he has this dream of a staircase in which angels are ascending and descending on that staircase. And he's amazed at the provision of God and the access he has to the God of heaven. And he wakes up from that dream and he says these words, 
Surely Yahweh, the Lord, is in this place, and I did not know it. At this moment was the beginning of Jacob's faith journey. He named that place Bethel, the house of God. At one point, he thought God was like all the other gods of the earth, as far as the pagans taught that God was only present at home in a particular location or city and only dealt with the people of that region. But he found out in that moment that God, the Lord, is reigning over all the earth. God is king everywhere. He is sovereign. He's not just back in the place where Jacob's father Isaac lived. He's even in Bethel and every place that Jacob will encounter the rest of his life. God is not just God over Israel during the reign of Joram. He's also the God of Syria. He's not just the God of Israel now. He's the God of the United States and the God of the Philippines and the God of Ukraine and the God of Israel. All those places all together. God is king everywhere. He is sovereign over great and small. But this also displays, because he is sovereign, he's in control of both grace and judgment. Here's what takes place. Probably the emphasis of this particular section, verses 7 through 15, is actually verses 11 and 12. He tells, he's already told, Hazel, by the way, your king will die, but he would have recovered from this illness. But then he starts staring at Hazel. He sets his face to him. The idea is he, he's staring at him. Now, now, I have to say, my son's in this mode of life right now where he can try to get my attention by staring at me. And, and so we'll, we'll stare at each other sometimes. But imagine, here's this prophet you've gone to with miraculous powers attributed to him, and he just sits there and stares at you before you go out the door. And then he starts crying. This penetrating stare, on the one hand, was a great embarrassment for this messenger. He's like, well, what am I supposed to make of this? You can imagine what that's like. Imagine here you, you go to, to someone for counsel or for help, and they tell you what you're waiting to hear, but then they just sit there and stare at you. It's embarrassing. But then there's the weeping of the prophet. Hazel says, why does my Lord weep? He answered, because I know the evil you will do to the people of Israel. Here's the presentation of this evil. You will set fire to their fortresses. You will kill, kill their young men. You will dash in pieces their children. You will rip open their pregnant women. These are terrible, awful things, aren't they? but these are things directly attributed to the judgment of God for the sin of the people of Israel. This is not in a vacuum. This isn't God saying, okay, I'm going to let you be the ruler, and by the way, these are the things you're going to do. This is all God's plan for the people of Israel because of their sin and their rebellion. These are curses of the covenant to come upon the people of God. And yet, as God designs to do this to his people, to bring them to their knees, yet he weeps for his people. And this is consistent through scripture. One of the other passages in your bulletin, it says Ezekiel 33, 11, 
Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet God brings the death of the wicked again and again and again in judgment. His pleasure instead is that the wicked turn from his way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? This is the heart of Elisha, which is inspired by God, proclaiming judgment, but weeping at the effects of it. And Jesus, much the same in what was read by Bruce earlier, Matthew chapter 23, as he looks at Jerusalem and he considers that just a couple of decades later, the Romans would come in on Jerusalem and he would take away their temple and there would be terrible atrocities committed in the city of Jerusalem and the surrounding areas so much so that scripture tells us that some of these circumstances were so bad there was nothing like it before in the history of the world. And Jesus said, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. And yet judgment was going to come. You see, the judgment of God is often accompanied by weeping. Jesus, Ezekiel, here Elisha, parents with their children, judges with criminals, it takes place. If we really understand the judgment of God, we weep for those who will undergo it. Our wrath against sin and our despising the wicked does not eliminate the compassion we have for those that undergo the judgment we know that we deserve. Elisha here says, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. The presentation of evil to this man, Haziel, told by God that he would be anointed king of Israel even years before with Elijah, how did he react? He said this, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? The wicked find delight in the presentation of judgment in 